I see our sport has risk in it all the time. Uh, that's one thing we all should admit before we. Uh, thing is, how much additional risk to take in competition, and that is what I evaluated, and also my motives for competing, and then in flight executing and or sticking to that principles that I came to that I will win when I like now my principle is simple. I will try to win when I can think smart and execute smart. But if I have to win by taking a chance, I don't care. I will let other people go if they want to do that. Greetings, everybody, from a very cold, wintry Sun Valley. Winters come early to us here in the, in the Wood River Valley. It's been fun to get outside and play a little bit, but as always, my mind is on paragliding, and the stars kind of aligned on this one. Uh, the PwC was out in beer a few weeks ago, a place that's very uh, special to me. That's where I cracked off some of my first kind of uh, XC flying back in 09, and then again in, in 11, and a uh, terrific place to fly there in the foothills of the Himalayas, and uh, they had a terrific comp. And uh, just about the same time that was going on, I was working on an article for the Outdoor Journal about the X-Alps. And uh, the gentleman I'm dealing with there said, listen, you've got to talk to Gurpreet Dinsa. He's India's number one pilot. He's a fantastic guy. He's got some great stories. I think he'd be fantastic on the podcast. So I reached out to him. And uh, it's taken us a few weeks to put it together because uh, the Internet's been tricky for Gurpreet. And the sound quality here reflects that, although I think it's good enough. Uh, um, it's, you certainly won't struggle through it, but it's not the crispest sound we've had on some of the other shows but i think it still works um gurpreet's been flying for 20 years uh this is just a terrific account of his history there and his progression um his thoughts on safety accidents uh getting better uh overcoming all kinds of uh political and bureaucratic trouble in in india and how hard that's been he's had to move mountains there uh he's the only certified instructor but there's tons of schools there there's a lot of really bad teaching going on so we talk about some of that and just his struggle to make paragliding a, a legitimate you know sport in in india i think he's done a lot of good for the sport there but it has been really challenging um, in terms of strategy and tactics and flying and in his own flying, we, we get into some really cool stuff here about, you know, how important it is to being in the moment and how important it is to um, change strategies that aren't working for you. You know, uh, for a long time, gaggle flying wasn't really working for him in, in competitions. And so uh, this this time around or these days, he's uh, gotten a lot more into flying his own line and making sure he's just enjoying it and, you know, not diving into really nasty places just to try to get on the podium you know he's decided that that's just not worth it and uh, so we get into a lot of that and just you know how how his career has developed and uh, progressed and changed and um, I think there's a lot here that you're really going to enjoy uh, he's a great personality we had a lot of fun with this one uh, without further ado Gurpreet Dinsa Gurpreet, it is fantastic to uh, meet you, even though we're not meeting face to face. We're meeting on Skype, but uh, I know you've just gotten done with the PwC out there and uh, in beer, and we'll get into that. But maybe before uh, maybe before we do, you can tell the listeners a little bit about you know who you are and and how you got into flying and, and when you got into flying. 
Uh, Gavin, first of all, it's my pleasure and kind of honor also to be on your podcast and uh, to be considered worthy of it, actually. <laughs> uh, um, I started paragliding in 95 and I came into paragliding from actually sailplanes. I flew sailplanes for just a year, just started. And then uh, actually my instructor told me that temperamentally I'm better suited for paragliding maybe. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he, he actually pushed me. <laughs> you were you were a little bit too crazy for sailplanes. No, actually, it was a government-owned club, and uh, um, they were lazy, or not the instructor, but the general mechanism. Um, <laughs> the instructor was a good guy, actually. He pushed me in the right way. Um, but the many days you go there, no flying, and I'm kind of question a person who always questions, like why, why we can't do it today. And the uh, Indian system is not very kind with that kind of wise. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's how I came into paragliding. And where were you at the time? Where, where did you learn? In India only. Uh, I learned in a place called Bilaspur. I started learning there. Actually, there was nobody, uh, like no proper instructor. They were self-proclaimed people, like self-proclaimed instructors. And I started with them, but because I came from learning sailplanes, which is a bit, bit more uh, formal education system, I soon realized that the training was so quite inadequate. And I got a little injured, like a sprained ankle, and came to conclusion that if I have to make mistakes, I will make my own. So I more or less self-taught after that. I mean, with help of a lot of friends, of course, I met on the way. And th this place you learned it helped me out with the geography because I, I I've, I've been to India several times but I haven't I've only flown really around Beer and kind of the foothills of the Himalayas. That were you were you in the Himalaya or is this another part of India? Yes, okay. it's foothill of Himalayas. It's from Beer. It's just about hundred uh, hundred thirty kilometers. Ah, okay, the Dharmasala way or the Mandi way. Um, from Mandi towards Chandigarh, like from southeast of Mandi. Okay, okay. And do you remember the first wing that you uh, you started on? No, actually. The one I used for training there, no. But later on, I had the uh, Comet XC2. Okay. <laughs> and that was uh, a company called Comet, if you remember. Yeah, Way of back. course. <laughs> so take me from, you know, those, those early days... Uh, you know, in the beginning, was it just, you know, little tiny flights off, off uh, your local hill? How, how did you go kind of from there to uh, even discovering cross-country? Was, was, was cross-country flying happening around you with, with other pilots that were better, or was that uh, kind of the beginning of, of cross-country flying in India? It was beginning, but there were already pilots. Like, Debu was ahead of me. He, had, uh, he was much younger, but he had learned two years before me. And he was already doing his Dharamshala flights when I first came to be. Mm. Um, but advantage I had was that I was already flying cross-country on a sailplane. Sure. So the concept of uh, cross-country was clear to me. Only problem was handling the glider, getting used to the soft things. Mm. And did you do kind of like um, SIV training and, and that kind of thing? Or was it more um, just hanging out with guys like Debu and and kind of piecing it together. Yeah, Debu, we were fortunate also, like Bob Drury, Robbie Whittle, uh, and John Sylvester, they were coming to India. Um, we didn't learn much directly, like, but more from observation and talking to them. 
and uh, there were other cross-country pilots also, Swiss pilots, French pilots, they were also coming here. So uh, that's the reason I moved to Beer. I gave up my work and I moved to Beer because I realized soon that if I want to get better, I have to fly with good pilots and good pilots were here. When did you move to Beer? Uh, actually from 97 I started coming here in the season and then I think a couple of years down the line I... 2002, I started a school here, so I actually moved a little bit before, but for a year I was in UK getting my instructor's education. Okay. And um, do, do they have kind of a similar certification in, in India like is, as in uh, Europe, or how, how, does that, how does that process work? Uh, currently, India has no certification system. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm kind of only certified instructor, and with my students also, I give them a Hungarian license. I registered okay. my school with the Hungarians, and I gave them a Hungarian license. Well, maybe I, I bet you're. Uh, uh, I bet it's still a lot more organized than maybe the Russian system. I remember coming to beer for my first time in 2009, and I think there were 70 students from Russia and one instructor. <laughs> <laughs> no, now they got divided. Now you get probably four. <laughs> 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 they've, but, they've really uh, increased their safety ratio, I guess. <laughs> in India, it's kind of a mixed lot. We have very organized schools which can qualify almost under any any system if if it comes. Um, the, the three or four schools in uh, Pune, which are quite responsible, they they do things in a very responsible way. Uh, I'm doing my best here in Beer, but then on the other hand, we have a lot of self-proclaimed. Not even, question isn't self-proclaimed. I mean, they're not ready. They're not instructor-level people, but they're teaching. Right. And there are even uh, associations, like some local associations, which are promoting that kind of people on basis of regionalism or neopism or something like that. It's not based on qualification. So, so that be, is a big Yeah, You have to be careful if you're going to come to learn in India to maybe seek out people like yourself. Uh, exactly. I mean, I'm surprised actually. Even some foreigners come and they go learn from people like that. And I just, I mean, I'm, it's not that loss of business that worries me. It's reputation of our country that worries me. And also, I wonder what what kind of thinking were they doing when they chose instructor like that. Mm. Uh, and uh, really surprises me. That's a good good warning to our our listeners because I know that you know it's 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 become a really famous place to fly and it attracts people from around the world you have you know mm. incredibly good weather at certain times of the year and uh big mountains but in, in some ways very friendly mountains that that's where I, I i learned to do some of my first bigger flights i did my first bivy actually in beer with john sylvester a little short flight from beer back to Manali and we camped very high, top landed and camped very high and got encased in ice and then flew back the next oh. morning and it was just, uh, we flew back over beer the next morning before the first person had even taken off up at cloud base and they were, everybody was looking up going, where in the hell did these guys come from? It was a <laughs> really special, a very special trip and kind of opened my eyes to what's possible. It's, it's not very far, but it's, uh, boy, that's spectacular. Yeah. So you you were how old then were you in ninety five How old were you when you learned? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Okay, so you've been flying quite a long time too. And uh, when did you start competing? Uh, Two thousand four. 
Well, pretty, pretty okay. So about ten years later, you start competing, and then was that also just in India, or do you compete internationally? Do you do you travel quite a bit? I started with the pre World Cup in India, and then uh, jumped straight into a World Championship in Portugal, <laughs> which I was second last. <laughs> 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 that that Gurpreet, that sounds like my first super final. I went in there thinking I was hot shit, and I got my ass kicked. <laughs> that's that's good. I, I knew too. what's going to happen, but I wanted to have that experience. So. Yeah, sure, sure. And then, have you been uh, part of the Indian uh, World's team then uh, since then, pretty regularly? Yes, pretty regularly. I've been competing ever since actually. Okay. Ah, fantastic. And so, what are you what are you flying now? And and what happened last week in beer? How'd that go? I'm flying boomerang now, boomerang time. And last week, I mean, weather wasn't typical beer weather in autumn, but I think it only made it more challenging. We had some like uh, I was talking to some uh, beginner cross country pilots here in uh, in India, and uh, yesterday only, and they said that. The conditions we had set 90 kilometer task, they probably won't even take off. <laughs> so, uh, that was the kind of weather we had. Uh, but brilliant task. Uh, uh, my results are just like mid level, but I'm quite happy with the flying we did. Mm. Um, made some mistake, bombed out, but that happens. And what have you found um, with most of your time? It sounds like flying in in the Himalaya. Um, how has that transferred? How have those skills transferred to other places when you've gone to fly uh, at other world events or in Europe or South America? Um, it, it, tell me a little bit about that. Is it, it's, uh, it seems like a, a fantastic training ground. Yeah, it trains you very well for strong conditions, but when you go fly flatlands, you're totally unprepared. Actually, that's what happened to me in Portugal. It was me and Debu together actually there. And after first day, we were laughing that Devu, we will take off and we will think where the thermals are going to be and then we won't go there, we will go somewhere else because wherever we think thermals are, they are not there. <laughs> <laughs> that was our strategy on day two in Portugal in 2003, actually. <laughs> go, go where you think you shouldn't the whole time. <laughs> exactly. We exclude the places where we think we should go and then we search somewhere else. That was the strategy. I love it. <laughs> but thing is, yeah, you, beer makes you pretty good with strong conditions. You're not, uh, that's not a problem anymore. And and with the big mountain, so you're very comfortable with, with terrain and being close to big mountains. But uh, you're not prepared for flatlands or definitely not prepared. Like my weakness still is weak conditions with windy day. I'm totally, I'm stumped. Whenever I face that condition, I go from very good ranking, like top 10 to last 10. Ah, okay. So you have trouble tracking the thermals when they're light and it's windy. Yeah. 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 When it's like a drifty and very weak and it's windy also, you're fighting headwind. I, I don't have patience. I'm so used to strong conditions. I can't stick on and try, try 10 times with the same trigger point or something. Um, drifting and coming back, drifting and coming. I just give up or I start searching somewhere else and then I bomb out. So that's, <laughs> I know my weakness, but it's so much ingrained into your muscle memory. It's hard sometimes to, to change suddenly. Yeah, I, would, I, I just was uh, working on the, the last podcast with Josh Cohn, who I'm sure you've flown with over the years, but uh 
you know, it's 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 amazing. I think what he brought out was how important the psychological, uh, you know, to just fly confidently, how, how important that is, you know, and it's it, it really is about training, not just the not just the technique, but, you know, knowing you can do it, isn't it? That's important. That's very important. Actually, uh, in 2009, I was flying pretty good, and uh, uh, but I was never um, actually doing very good in results. And I was encouraged by uh, uh, one of the Bulgarian pilots saying that, Gupit, you can win, you don't try to win ever. And I won the next three competitions a day after that. Wow. <laughs> just, just because somebody told me I'm good enough, it made a lot of difference. Because see, in India, we, uh, we didn't have any mentor, we didn't have any coach, we had nobody ahead of us to teach. And we always, and, and because we started way behind the European pilots, uh, we had this kind of thing that we are not good enough, we are not good enough. And then it took somebody to kind of encourage us and say, like, you can do it. So that made a lot of difference. Is your is your job then pure purely out from paragliding? Is that your kind of year round income? Is from instruction and that kind of thing and competitions, or uh, do you have something on the side, or is is paragliding just just a side? No, my income comes from teaching paragliding. I... Do you get any help from the from the government? <laughs> Not at all. No, okay. In fact, the, I, I told this in media before, so I can say it again now, is that best I expect from government is to leave me alone. Because usually, instead of help, we had uh, problems from government. Ah, okay, okay. So, wow, it sounds tricky then. To I mean, you've got some, some uh, certainly visiting pilots come out there that are terrific. I know, you know people make the migration every year to beer in the spring and the fall, but... Uh, it sounds like training can be quite challenging if you don't have, I always think of myself, I feel so lucky that I have mentors around me that have been, you know, competing for a long time, but can also uh, tell me when I'm being stupid. And, and like you say, you know, giving you the kind of hand on the back to make you feel better. But that sounds like it might be tricky there. Yeah, like right now I'm at a level where I have uh, good results in uh, category two comps or opens, uh, but I never had a good result in, like, best was 17th position, I think, in a World Cup. Uh, but I think from here onwards, it's more, if, if not a mentor, we need a good team that we can fly together and encourage and, uh, and also to believe that we can do it. I just about started feeling that I can stay with the lead gaggle in, in the World Cup. And it took me 20 years to get here. And without, that's what happens without the mentor. If we had a coach, a mentor, a team, and some sponsorships or encouragement from the government. It could have happened in, let's say, six, seven years. So Tell me, that's, that's interesting then. Tell me about that kind of transition um, from, from maybe, you know, feeling like you could do well in, in, in Cat 2 to, to Cat 1. Uh, was, that, was that just purely mental or was that maybe just an accumulation of more and more hours, uh, some combination? Both, I think. Most of it is hours and World Cup hours, you know, more you compete in the World Cup. And equipment also, like, um, um, I was flying Axis when the two-liner thing came in and I stayed with Axis because they had been giving me wings for a couple of years, 2008, 9, 10, they gave me wings. Um, so I stayed loyal to the company, but I was looking behind and... Uh, 
was difficult here. And then I jumped to Newark. I had a good performance for a year, but then uh, my body weight increased and I'm, uh, I gained a weight. I became a little fat. And I uh, struggled with, uh, again, like I couldn't get the last 100 meters that other pilots were getting most of the time, in particularly in weak conditions. And then I uh, jumped to boomerang, a size bigger, and uh, again, I had very good, like, beginning, first task, I won the task this summer. So it was, and it seemed super easy. One, it was in Macedonia, I'm very familiar with the place. But I think it was equipment also. So it's a combination of everything. And, and the years I struggle also contribute, because when you struggle with slightly hand, handicap in equipment or something, then you're trying to make up with the, with observation, with skills, with strategy. And then when you jump to right equipment, it immediately shows. Mm, suffering makes us better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. We've been mostly talking about competitions, but are you also quite a pa- – it sounds like you're quite passionate about competitions. Are you also passionate about just free flight? I am, but uh, I have to make my earning from teaching paragliding. So actually, nowadays, I do fly less in bead than most visiting pilots do because uh, same, it's time for me to earn money. If I don't earn money, then I don't have money to buy equipment and compete. Mm. So I enjoy competition. I have like after Eddie got hurt, and our friend Dalip Kodecha, he died in same year in Bulgaria. Um, I had a lot of uh, thinking to do, and um, came to the conclusion that I still enjoy competing. I will compete, but uh, maybe for slightly different reasons, and in a, like take slightly less chances. But I will compete. So uh, that's a that's a chosen path. Uh, after a lot of thought. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you been hurt yourself? You, you mentioned you had a small injury right when you were first learning, but have you, have you had any other uh, accidents? I had an accident in 2000, uh, broke my shoulder. That's uh, That made me think enough to go to UK and do my certifications, including uh, instructor certification. Okay. And, and have you ever had a period, uh, this is a common question I ask everybody, but have you ever had a period where you've you know had to back away from the sport or maybe had to contemplate it uh, more or uh, you know been been scared away from the sport for a while not scared in a, a way but uh, like uh, when Eddie uh, first Dilip died in the competition I was still I kind of became more stubborn in that competition I decided to continue with the competition and uh, I came in third in that. It was a pre-Worlds in, in Bulgaria. And uh, just a week later, Eddie had an accident. He was in coma. And my, I in the next competition in Macedonia, I was 92nd. So I and there were a couple of tasks in which I just I looked. The, the waypoint seemed to be in the lee side of the mountain. I just refused to go. I just, just landed. And... Uh, so back away a bit, yes, a little scared, yes, and it took me almost two years to regain the full form, but I didn't stop continuing. Hmm. So you were, you were uh, still, still fine with flying, but uh, you were, you definitely were taking less risk. Yeah, I, I would. A lot of times I decided to land and not continue with the with the task. Hmm. And it's uh, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Whether a competition or whether we're free flying, when we. When we don't fly aggressively, it's hard to do well. 
It's not a question of aggression even. I think it's a balance. You have to be in the moment. And if there is something serious going on in your brain, you're not in the moment. So uh, what seems to be dangerous at that time may be not dangerous when you're flying with the flow. You, you're in the moment, then it's easier to handle. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's a that's a great that's a great way to put that. Um, what are your What are your goals now? Uh, you know, you've been flying since '95, so uh, 20 years. Um, is it still to uh, get better and better at competitions? Are you still quite? Do you still find uh, you're very excited about the sport now after all these years? Uh, given my strategy this year has been that I would not. Uh, fly competitions for scores. I don't care about, but I like to win each. Uh, I fly so I can win a task. Mm. So I take chances. I I stay with the lead as much as possible. If I get a lead, I attack. And even if I bomb out, I don't care. Uh, so this is a deliberately chosen strategy so I can learn how to stay in the lead if I ever get it. And also to be more um, more Attack not aggressive, but like when opportunity or my skills let me lead, I should not be uncomfortable leading. That is the uh, strategy. And also, it's kind of a challenge. I want to fly my own line. So if, what better way to be in the lead and choose the line? Uh, so far, because I don't have that good a reputation, particularly with the World Cup level pilots, the gaggles don't usually follow me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's okay. Sooner or later. If I keep choosing right lines, people will come with me. And yeah, I think I mean, I'm choosing I'm choosing right lines in last last few competitions. Even if my results were not so good, uh, my lines were much better than even what the most of the winning gaggle chose. Just that I was flying alone most of the time. So I'm I'm proud of that, and I'm I'm working on that. And sooner or later, it will work out. Idea is small improvements and continuous improvement, and to enjoy it. If I stop enjoying it, I'll stop doing it. This change in your strategy was this recommended to you, or was it something that, you know, you just felt like, okay, maybe I've I've gotten as good as I can using this what I've always done, and I need to do something new. Uh, it, it's my own thought. I think mainly it's like I don't need to fly for points because in India they both stopped competing, so I uh, I don't have much competition for national ranking. So there's no need to bother about points or anything. I better to get better and to enjoy flying. And if I I feel more satisfied if I make a, a choice uh, and I have a good choice, even if my ranking is not good, I feel more satisfied at the end of the day. So that is much better feeling than just a few more points. Hmm. hmm. I like that. So. And what 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 initially? You're going to re rewind the clock here again. What initially got you excited about, or why did you want to take up sailplanes? I got no idea. I think every kid, uh, particularly boys, as a kid, we all dream of flying, and I think some kids don't give up their dreams. That's you know. hmm. and my father was in army and in the border police also later on, and uh, I saw his life, and I didn't want to go into services, uh, but I wanted to fly. Uh, when I was growing up, commercial airline business in India hadn't opened up that way. Thankfully, I didn't go into that. I just wanted to fly as a hobby. So, gliding was the cheapest option, and that's how I got into it. Hmm. 
And then when you transitioned to paragliding, was it was it kind of an instant, oh, my God, this is amazing, or did it take some time? Yeah, it was like coming home. I, oh. I had my first flight on paraglider, and I knew this was it. Wow. I like that. <laughs> We're always yeah. chasing that first flight, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and um, I kind of asked this already, but if you had any – in the in the last twenty years, have you gone through periods where you're you find that it's hard to find that kind of stoke and excitement and passion? Mm, not really. I told you, like only trouble time I had was like my injuries didn't deter me much, like with the broken shoulder or the sprained ankle or anything. But um, with the, my teammates' death and uh, other another teammates uh, going into coma for. Uh, for four months, it was little difficult. Um, I had a lot of thinking to do, and re- like really admit to myself why I compete or what should be my reasons to compete. Uh, but once I figured it out, I, it was okay. And by figuring it out, was it just you felt like the risk was worth it? You felt like your love of it uh, uh, justified it. I see our sport has risk in it all the time. That's one thing we all should admit before we do it. Uh, thing is, how much additional risk to take in competition, and that is what I evaluated, and also my motives for competing, and then in flight executing and or sticking to that principle that I came to that I will win when I like now. My principle is simple: I will try to win when I can think smart and execute smart. But if I have to win by taking a chance, I don't care. I will let other people go if they want to do that. Hmm. Uh, that's that's smart. I think that you know that uh, aligns with there are old pilots and bold pilots, but no old bold pilots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm in the later category now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have? Are you married? You have kids? I have kids. I was married. We are separated now for many years. But um, I have a daughter. She's grown up. Twenty-three now. Ah, and did did having children uh, change your risk tolerance at all? No, I started. My daughter was three years old when I started paragliding. Hmm. So um, I don't think like I was talking to Devu, and one of the reasons he has stopped competing is having kids now. And I was laughing with him that I started flying when I already had kids, and, <laughs> and they grew up fine, <laughs> no problems. So I can tell you. If you could, if you could uh, go back and you know now with all this experience of twenty years under your belt and all these competitions and seen some injuries and had some injuries, would you, if you could go back and and give your sixteen year old self uh, some advice? Uh, oh, did I get that right? I was twenty nine when 29, I started. Twenty nine. Sorry, so not your sixteen year old self. Your your twenty nine year old self. If you could give uh, that group read some advice, what would it be? Uh, to immigrate and start flying somewhere else, and <laughs> uh, I have mentors and coaches and better training. <laughs> Get out of India. <laughs> yeah. When uh, I was in UK doing my instructor certification, I was giving a theory lesson. I, I'm a physics uh, postgraduate, so science came easy to me. Um, I was giving a lecture as a training instructor in a school, uh, Airways Flight Park, and my my instructor, my chief instructor was listening to me give the lecture and I was a little subconscious that maybe I'm doing something wrong, he's paying so much attention. 
But after the lecture, he came to me like, I was just admiring the way you put things across. And he, he said, I should move out of India because India is holding me back. That's the first time I heard that. But uh, I think there's an element of truth in that. Mm. So it, that's, that's tough. You've got these, uh, you know, the biggest mountains in the world, an incredible playground to learn, but it doesn't, you don't have the, maybe the infrastructure and the, the culture, I guess, that would support it. Yeah, given, but that's one way of thinking is that, okay, I suffered, but then the way I think about it, the rewarding part of it is that maybe I also contributed it in making it a little better than it was. Mm. So if I stuck around, maybe maybe it made a little dent, because society is hard to change. Sure. I don't think things are going to change in a big way just because I stuck to some standards. Um, but I think there is a certain level of skill transfer even to people who just fly around me, not just uh, my students. And also, if I if I stick to some principles, then my competitor also has to stick to some principles. Otherwise, it's very obvious what they're doing. So it does translate um, to some gain. So I think <laughs> I would like to think it was somehow useful. What, what times in your career have really stood out as uh, kind of special moments and that like the times that you've really come away and gone, whoa, I really improved. Uh, do, you, do you have specific times like that that really stand out? I think 2009 and last two years also. I had a good glider also. The 2009 uh, Axis Mercury was pretty good. And particularly one I had was pretty nicely trimmed thanks to Martin at, at the factory. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, that was uh, also a jump in confidence level, so and it was rewarding. That that was one of the best. And um, now last two three years also, I, somehow I'm, I'm enjoying every year now. Every year I see little improvement, little change, some small epiphany about flying, understanding little details, understanding little bit more strategy. And I'm actually eager to convey to other Indian pilots. I hope they come up. Soon, I mean, and now we are getting like that 10, 12 people who are very good with cross country now already, and they should start competing soon. So I'm quite eager to be their mentor now. <laughs> mm. if, if, they, if they would uh, accept me as one, then I would help them. Yeah, maybe maybe give them a little bit of what was hard for you to get. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that would be really special to share that kind of passion that you have and love of, of flight that you have. Um, Tell me about um, learning and progression. You, you, uh, are there, are there? You said you've kind of got this hole in your game with with light, uh, light thermals and and, and wind. Um, are there yeah. things that you're uh, you're currently working on, or things that you know stand out as 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 kind of holes in your uh, ability? And and how how are you attacking that? Actually, the biggest hole is now, I told you, weakest, uh, weak uh, windy conditions. And, and I don't have anywhere in India I can practice that. Um, I'm exploring some sites, uh, which is flatland sites in central India, Madhya Pradesh. And we plan to go there in February, me and Vijay, and fly there some. And I also think that that will be a place uh, for uh, distance records in India. Indian distance records. It's maybe not good enough for world records. It's not windy enough, but still better than other places. Have you flown at all in Brazil? 
No, I haven't been to North or South America yet. Ah, okay. It's too, too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we, we have to get you over here. That, I, think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. We have uh, very strong conditions also where, where I live in the, in the Rocky Mountains. You'd, you'd probably thrive here. Yeah, I had registered uh, for the U.S. Open this year, but then I backed out because just expensive were Parents didn't look very good, so I <laughs> dropped that idea. Right, right. Uh, yeah, no, that was a that was a fun competition. We had a couple of pretty major accidents there, of course. I'm sure you heard, but uh, yeah. yeah, it was a really, really fantastic competition. Um, so, who who are still who who would you say are your mentors now? Is is it still Debu? I know he's still around, but are there others? Debu is not competing, so my mentor, um, it's like people, I, Petra is one, Petra helps me, she's like a sister. Mm-hmm. Um, rest is more observation and reflection actually. Uh, I don't think I have direct inputs coming from any pilot uh, as such, but more observing, analyzing, watching. Live tracking is big help. Yeah. <laughs> you can see see where you made mistake and other people are good. So having access to everybody's track and replaying the day it helps a lot. And do you also do you utilize X contest to look at track logs of other pilots that are there, you know, in non competition times but just you know, like in general in beer to see what people are doing? Are are there other tools other than live tracking you use to improve? Um See the XC contest uh, or uh, any online um, tracks of normal cross-country, uh, they're not so interesting. Like um, this year if World Cup, the last task, uh, people came in so trying, trying to get that last waypoint and they got a thermal of the tea factory, almost like rooftop height, and they finished the task from there. That's something I would have never imagined possible having even lived here. I didn't know that you can come in so low over Bead Village, almost touching the tea factory roof and get off from there and back to almost 2,500 meter and finish your task from there. That local knowledge uh, thing didn't work. It actually worked against me. I didn't think it was possible. Huh. That, that brings up an interesting point. One of the things that um, that mad said in his in his podcast and it's something i've heard from other people is that the local hero never wins the comp uh, at his local site uh that it's always somebody new that comes in and you know kind of sees things differently or you know doesn't really know the maybe the house thermals or whatever but just flies maybe more creatively only because they're ignorant you know they don't know the place if you do you find that you excel more at home or or when you're on the road? Uh, on the road, I totally agree with Mads on that. Yeah, it's uh, we have more, too much uh, preconceived notions about our own site, uh-huh. and uh, when you look at the site with fresh perspective and just go by analysis of the place according to the condition, then it, it's much better. Uh-huh. Of course, you have to be very good with that. Not. Not everybody's cup of tea, but with the top pilots, I think everybody will agree that this is usual. The place you're very used to, you will have some preconceived notions about it. What kind of mental, where do you like to be mentally when you go to a comp? Have you found that there's a correlation between when you do well and when you're in a certain frame of mind? 
it's 100% right it's all psychology um, i mean after a certain skill level but it's hard to recreate like like this year uh, summers the first competition i did very well and all the frame of mind i was in i was almost seeing the whole competition happen as a as a as a third party as a viewer from outside and i knew exactly the people mistake people were making exactly where i should keep myself when i should go fast it was amazing and i've been trying to uh, recreate that frame set in my mind and i have not succeeded uh, might have come close to it but uh, i don't know where it exactly came to that's something i'm working on right now is that where did that frame of mind come from and what do i need to do to be there again so that's that's my homework that's that's interesting. Josh talked about a similar thing in, in the last podcast, which I, I was pretty fascinated about. You know, he he actually started studying psychology uh, to try to 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 become better. And it, isn't that funny that we you know we we probably put uh, too little weight on that. We all know it's a mental game, but it's uh, it, it's really important. Yeah, I think I think even uh, with the very advanced uh, teams, uh, I don't know whether they're getting any psychological training or not, but. Uh, with the sessions that have budget, I think it should be important part. Uh, psychology is the biggest part in computing. Also in cross country too, or excels. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. You know, you the, the, Nate has this saying: as soon as you think about landing, you're going to land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the ground pull. <laughs> yeah, ground suck. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something that was interesting to me. You said you studied uh, science and physics, and you were quite uh, adept at, at physics. Um, I find that there's an extraordinary number of pilots uh, worldwide that, that uh, one day in the XOPS, I think the second day I was walking down off the mountain with uh, Aaron Duragati and Michael Vichy and Stanislav Meyer, and, and uh, Michael is an engineer, and uh, you know, an incredibly solid uh, PwC pilot for a long time, and you know, really good pilot in general. And, uh, and so we started yeah. talking about his his engineering background, and and then I started reflecting on the. It seems to be there's a lot of engineers in this sport. Um, I, I'm about the opposite of that. I, I you know, I'm more of a <laughs> kinetic guy. I don't understand engineering at all. If someone went over a bridge that I built, they would kill themselves. So they would what. what uh, what do you what do you relate that to, um, and and do you do you find that because your brain works in that way that it really helps your flying? It's two parts to paragliding. One part is the science or the the cerebral part, and other is the cortical thinking. You know, the muscle memory and reflexes and feeling, and they're both equally important. And uh, ideal would be to develop both equally or um, actually build the science first and then the reflexes or equally uh, as you go but uh, I think both pilots do well like it's, it's typically here also Debu uh, and me uh, we are quite on the opposite and we might have worked our way towards the middle me developing more from the science and he developing more because he started flying at 14 years old and he his ed- formal education isn't much, so he didn't care much about learning science of it. And he developed the and he's as good pilot and even maybe a little better, I would say. Uh, but uh, I think one of he probably had to learn some of the concepts 
the hard way and I have probably had to develop my senses um, to be finer and finer over the years. It took me longer because I started older. But um, I think both are equally important. Mm. Mm. And they, they, go, they go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, they go hand in hand. You have to, it's like, like everything, you have to first understand things and then develop the feel. Because we, we don't have the sensor that birds something, something. So feel is equally important to develop your reflexes and muscle memories and to do things instinctively at the moment that is um, that's equally important. The same goes for uh, like in one of the tasks this year, uh, this uh, PwC here, uh, it got really cloudy and uh, I had, the waypoint was outside in the valley and we were, the, the next waypoint was outside, we were at the waypoint that was close to hill. And I think me and Ajay were pretty close at that time. And uh, I decided that I need to go towards the waypoint because it's anyway outside and if sun break, it will break from outside first. And Ajay somehow decided to go to the mountain and then go to the waypoint later on uh, after saving himself on the mountain. And his strategy worked. And for me, the sun didn't break <laughs> and I bombed out. And I asked him like why he made the decision and he had no why. And he said he kind of just meditated and let his instinct decide where he wants to go. He actually was totally confused also. And he just let his gut feeling take him there. He probably has better trained gut feeling than me. Mm. So that's something I need to work on. Maybe. Boy, how do, you, how do you train your gut feeling though? That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a tricky <laughs> I think one. More, no, it's, I think everybody has gut feeling. But when we are very cerebral thinker, like more scientific, we overrule it. Mm. We think too much and we overrule it. If Like me and Ajay, I think we have similar level of flying and we should both have kind of experiences and reflexes. But because I was thinking too cerebrally, I overruled my instinct to do something. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's almost some poetry there. I think that we've all probably... Uh, had those moments where the gut feeling has really worked and it's terrific and, and had the moments when we're too cerebral and you, you're on the ground watching everybody fly over your head. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, cerebral helps, but not always. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's also, but I've been thinking about it. Right now, it's just been from the last competition I've been thinking and I think when I'm, from future, when I'm in doubt, my cerebral thinking is not very clear and it's based on a chance that I go there, sun might break, then I will shut up the cerebral and follow my gut. Because it's not clear answer. If it's clear answer, I will go there. If it's not clear answer, then I will just go by my saying that. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, Gurpreet, that is, uh, I don't think I could have said any of that lighter stuff better than myself. That was, that, that was fantastic. I really appreciate that. Um, is there anything else you, you'd like to add or uh, anybody want to give a shout-out to before we, we close things up? I, I feel like uh, we got really lucky with this Internet connection, and um, that was just a, a fabulous talk. I really appreciate your time. Um, only I would like to thank all the people I fly with. Uh, like I said recently on the Facebook also, I completed 20 years and I was celebrating that and uh, I wanted to say that uh, flying is amazing but the community is amazing also. Uh, they made it beautiful. So 
I'm thankful to all the people I've hired. Yeah, it's a pretty special community, isn't it? It's uh, really, I feel very fortunate to be to be a part of it. Well, it's uh, well, here's to here's to the next twenty years, right? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Thank thank you very much, Gurpreet, and uh, uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Kevin. We'll play. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That talk really reminded me of one of Nate Scales' favorite sayings, which I completely ripped off from him in a couple different film projects that I've done. But he said when when we were working on 500 Miles to Nowhere, I love where paragliders take you and I love where paragliders take you. And at first I couldn't understand the redundancy of that, but uh, he described it as, you know, because we love paragliding, we chase it all over the world. So, you know, we follow our paragliders around the world to try to chase uh, cross country. And then also that every time we step off a mountain, we have no idea where we're going to go. And so he loves where paragliders take you. And I've just always enjoyed that. I also really like where the cloud-based mayhem is taking me and hopefully you, the listener, uh, as we start to talk to people around the world. A A lot of the guests we've had on the show have been pretty North American base so uh, it's good to reach out and get a perspective uh, like Gurpreet's from the other side of the world Um, as always please reach out to me if you have any feedback or if you want to see somebody on the show uh, let me know via my uh, website cloudbasedmayhem.com or via Facebook you can find me on there or Instagram or whatever you like to use Uh, really appreciate your generous donations as always uh, all we ask for is a buck a show if you got something out of this or one of the previous shows like Nate Scales's which was definitely one of our most popular he's been Back a few uh, episodes. If you haven't checked that on out, you have to. It's hysterical. His account of his exop experience in 20, 2007 and then flying around taking pictures of waypoints back before we had GPS is, is really, it'll make you laugh, I promise. But uh, keep doing this. I enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Give us a shout out on uh, iTunes or, or Stitcher if you like us. You know, Give us a rating on there and uh, we'll catch up with you the next time. Cheers. <laughs>